Over recent weeks, European countries have welcomed with open arms the hundreds of thousands of refugees who are fleeing the war in Ukraine. But that same welcome has not been offered to others. Far from it. Libya is estimated to have over 20 detention centres where migrants and refugees caught trying to cross illegally into Europe are kept. Thousands of African migrants stuck in detention centres now on the front line. Please, we need freedom. We need to get out from the war. We need to get out of Libya. Libya, please, please help, help. Irish Times reporter Sally Hayden has written a book about the experience of migrants who have been imprisoned in detention centres in Libya without any legal path to freedom and where human rights abuses are common. And it all happens with the support of the European Union. I ultimately believe that it's the European people that are the ones who are, you know, we're all culpable here because this is about who gets to stay comfortable and who doesn't and who experiences atrocities and who doesn't and who gets saved and who doesn't, you know, and I think we all need to ask ourselves about that and ask what we can do. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Hapollock. Today, Europe's role in the other human rights disaster right on our doorstep. Sally Hayden is a reporter covering the African continent for the Irish Times and her first book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, has just been published. Sally, just to step back to when you're reporting on the migrant crisis, specifically in Libya, properly kicked off in August 2018, it it all began when you received a Facebook message from an account you didn't recognise. What did it say and how did the situation escalate from that point? Yeah, so um, it was just a Sunday, like a regular Sunday. I was, I think, watching Netflix and I got this message on Facebook. It said, hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. We are under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. Um, So, I mean, I get a lot of random messages online, to be honest, because of the type of reporting I do. I didn't necessarily believe it or, you know, I was skeptical. I was like... Why would this person be messaging me from Libya? Who are they? What's going on? But of course, I still responded. I was curious. So I said, tell me more. Like, I can't help but tell me more. Okay, I'm sending this message to the world to recognize that we are in suffer. We are sending this message straight from Tripoli, Absalom camp. We are 500 people. There are 500 people. 120 are from them. Women and 20 are children. They had no food or water. They had been guarded by Libyans, but the Libyan guards had run away and that they had just been abandoned there. The guard had left us because of the war. He said that there were 500 men, women and children, that they had been abandoned in this, what he called a prison, um, a migrant detention centre in Tripoli, the capital of Libya, and that there was a war breaking out around them. Bullets and the weapons are passing through us. The people are disturbed. UN, please help us. European Union, you should recognise that we are in a bad condition and you should give us a first aid help. We need some help, so give us a help. Shame on you, UN. Shame on you, European Union. We are separate. We're the voice of the people. They are giving their... I started figuring out what to do and I ended up posting the messages on Twitter after talking to this guy who was messaging me I said what should I do he said you know tell the world you have to tell the world what's happening so I started posting the messages on Twitter just trying to get them help 
Um, and yeah, from that point, it did escalate. It became this ongoing Twitter thread. It was, I think it was quite clear in those early messages or those early tweets that I really didn't understand this situation either. But what became apparent was that these were all people who had tried to reach Europe. So they had tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea already in an attempt to reach Europe, um, like Italy or Malta. And they had been intercepted at sea by the Libyan Coast Guard, who are being supported by the European Union and had been since 2017. And they were forced back where they were put in indefinite detention with no legal process, no criminal charge or anything like that, just locked up. Um, and this had been the consequence then when war broke out, they were just abandoned. Are you waiting? Sally, do you hear that one? When I started reporting on this, I was in touch with people in one detention centre, but quite quickly, because I was posting online, because people were sharing my number, my name between the different detention centres, I was getting contacted by people in more and more and more centres. When we get up, we don't know if it's a night or a day. We get up, we eat and we sleep. I don't know if it's the day or a night. Hello, we are under infective where we don't have food for water to drink, our children are crying for food, so we cannot provide, so we are asking for help. Please help us, 120 ladies and 20 children and 8 pregnant women. The gardens for this camp has run away. We don't have any security, so we are open to be killed and to be servants. Please help us. Hello, Sally. I'm from Zintan Detention Center. So Zintan, Zintan I first became aware of because when the war, the first war um, that I was reporting on started and there was this one group that were left abandoned, there was another group that were actually moved to Zintan and they said that they were doing this, you know, this was the Libyan authorities and the UN said they were doing this to keep them safe, essentially, so to get them away from fighting. But in reality, they were moved, I think it's 183 kilometers, something like that, outside of the capital city you know, they're very far away. (laughs) So it's like very hard. Like what they were worried about is they're not going to have access to international organizations, to medical care, all of this. Um, And what happened very quickly when they got there was that people started dying. Uh, Even the number of died uh, patients are increasingly to 23. Within the past months, now one uh, uh, guy is died vast majority of people inside these detention centers, they're very young, like they're teenagers or they're in their 20s, like they're, you know, they should be healthy. Um, But I think within four weeks or six weeks, basically an average of almost one person a week had died until the following June. So like they were moved there in September and until the following June, around an average of one person died every fortnight. You know, people were getting tuberculosis. They were just being put in one room. They were all being held together. There wasn't proper medical care. Um, There wasn't enough food. There were hundreds of men that were just locked in one hole. And they literally like had, they were fed through a grate. They had um, an area of the hole, you know, where they shower, where the toilet was. Then an area that was just a pile of rubbish that there were literally maggots crawling through. Um, And yeah, people just kept dying. And for me, that was very upsetting, actually, because 
I was being told about this. I had contacts in the center who would inform me whenever someone died. And I was sending on these messages and asking, why aren't they getting the medical help they need or why has nothing been done? By October, I started contacting the UN and I actually wrote a story on it like one month after they were moved, asking like, why are so many people dying in Zintan? And it took until the following June for a UN interagency mission to actually visit Zintan and to for there to be an official report saying that there was a problem and actually admitting that I think at that point there had been 22 deaths. And I actually, I've met like a, quite a few people now who have been held in Zintan who were there at the time that I was reporting on it that I've met in person since. Um, I mean, they say they dropped like 25 kilos or 30 kilos when they were being held there. Like they were so emaciated. Like you can, they've shown me photos of them inside. They look, you know, just horrific. It seemed terrible. There is another centre I want to ask about. That's Tajura in Tripoli, because it was hit directly by the conflict, uh, by bombs in 2019, and dozens of migrants were killed. Although it's still not clear how many. Um, You say in your book that the UN said it was dozens, but people you spoke to say up to 200. What happened in that centre? It's a bit confusing because there were various conflicts throughout this first year, but the biggest one started in April 2019. And that was when Haftar, uh, Khalifa Haftar, the Eastern General, decided that he wanted to conquer Tripoli, essentially. So he announced a military assault on Tripoli. And in Tripoli, you kind of have two governments. So you have the Eastern government and then you have the Tripoli-based government, which are, you know, when you talk about government, migrant detention centers, that's the one that you're speaking about. That's the UN-backed government. And so what had happened was the UN-backed government, the migrant detention centers aligned with them, were effectively being run by militias. And so they were also being used to store weapons. And actually the refugees and the migrants who were locked inside them after trying to reach Europe were being enlisted to help with the war efforts. Um, So these were military bases, you know, like, and everybody was saying they're military bases. I was getting messages from refugees and at least five of them. And I wrote about this at the time saying these are military bases and we need to be moved away from them because we're being used as human shields, like, which is a war crime. It's a war crime to use people as human shields. So there was this one detention center, Tejura, that was then hit by an airstrike, which was a direct hit on one of the migrant, the holes that the migrants and refugees were being held at. Hi. Hi, what's happening? So many people were killed, but the problem is there's no registration system. So like... You can have a whole room full of people, but you don't know who they are. And even they don't know, like I've spoke to people, their survivors who had friends who died and they were like, I don't know how to contact their family. I know his, you know, I know his name. I know he comes. There was one guy from Gambia. He was like, this is his name, but I don't know how I would reach his family. How am I meant to tell them what's happened to him? So, um, and that was, you know, that could have been rare because some of those people had just been brought there like a week before. So, you know, they're, there was no registration. It was just like, yeah, very. And from what I know, the vast, vast majority of the people who died were buried in unmarked graves. I think like very, very few were identified in the aftermath. Coming up, how European policies are perpetuating misery, torture and death in Libya. 
We've heard about the horrific conditions in Libyan camps, but why were these camps established in the first place? In 2011, political unrest spread across North Africa and the Middle East, sparking what became known as the Arab Spring. Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi was killed by rebels and his country descended into civil war. By 2015, the fallout from the Arab Spring was contributing to a significant surge in the number of migrants attempting to reach Europe. But then the EU took action to hold them back. Sally, can you give a quick overview of the measures that the EU introduced since 2015 to manage this migrant crisis, but also essentially push people back from our borders? Yeah, I mean, we even even this terminology of migrant crisis is something that I know a lot of people question because the idea of a European migrant crisis, it wasn't so much a crisis for Europe, it was a crisis for the people trying to reach Europe. And obviously in 2015, we had, I think, 1.3 million people claim asylum in the EU. Um, I mean, we've seen in Ukraine already more than that have crossed the border of Ukraine. So it kind of puts it in perspective. But in the whole year of 2015, That was how many claimed asylum, but that was seen as like a very large number um, of people arriving and they were fleeing all sorts of, you know, wars and dictatorships, a lot of different types of situations. And so there was kind of a backlash against this and particularly in terms of far right, um, right wing movements gaining power or using it, politicizing it and uh, using that to gain power. And as a result of that, we also had like parties that would have been more um, centrist or, or left-wing even kind of moving to try and control this because they saw it as a threat to, you know, their power and also just like how stable Europe was. And, you know, we had Brexit, Donald Trump, all of these things. There were a series of, of things that happened. I mean, even before 2015, there had been efforts at securitizing Europe's borders. But then in 2015, we had the EU Trust Fund for Africa. That's a multi-billion um, part of money, which basically is being spent across 26 African countries. Um, and the aim is effectively to stop migration, but it's spent in a lot of different ways and through a lot of different means. Um, and that's been heavily criticized by, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of activists, analysts, refugees, rights people who say that it's contributing to the, you know, more, it's making people's lives worse in a lot of ways because it's contributing to the securitization of borders or propping up even governments or um, or leadership that are actually responsible also for atrocities against their own people. Uh, so, yeah, we had had all of this. And then under the Trust Fund for Africa, that's also where um, a lot of this Libyan Coast Guard funding is coming from. Can you give a very brief overview for someone who wouldn't know anything about the Libyan Coast Guard deal, just what exactly it entails? So we had a deal, first of all, with uh, possibly people know about the EU and Turkey deal. And that was the other route into Europe, the Eastern Mediterranean route. Um, and that was basically a deal that the EU did with Turkey to, to enlist Turkey to stop refugees from crossing into Greece. And so then they kind of looked at Libya. They looked, could they attempt to do something like that to stop refugees coming from North Africa? But Libya, it hasn't had really a stable government since the revolution in 2011. And so one of the methods that was that they looked at was how can you, 
you know, supporting and even honestly, like creating the Libyan Coast Guard because the Libyan Coast Guard is not as clear an entity as it sounds. And certainly it wasn't when this deal began. I mean, people, you know, people describe it as like a collection of militias, effectively, some of whom are former smugglers, some of whom are still accused of being involved in smuggling. You know, it's it's not necessarily under a clear leadership and, um yeah. So, but ba- but basically, the idea was to give them training, to give them equipment, um, and to give them kind of support to intercept boats. From 2017 to August 2021, 81,000 people were intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard. Already this year, over 3,456 migrants have been intercepted. Many of these will end up in Libya's detention centres. According to a recent UN report, there are now close to 7,000 migrants in Libyan detention centres, where human rights abuses, including torture and rape, are prevalent. The only way out of this is to bribe a guard. Some migrants said they had gone through the cycle of paying for release, attempting to cross the Mediterranean and being recaptured and imprisoned up to 10 times. And many die in the attempt. More than 23,500 have lost their lives while crossing the central Mediterranean since 2014. An estimated 394 people have drowned or gone missing while trying to make the crossing so far this year. Sally, this system that has been set up obviously is an incredibly bad one for migrants. They're suffering and many are dying. But you've written that it's also been a bad system for Libya itself. Why is that? I mean, I think that everybody that I speak to, I've interviewed so many people about this now, a lot of Libyans, they all just say that it's, a, you know, it's militia rule. And um, I write in the book that building a country on militia rule, we're building a state on militia rule is like building a city on top of sand. Like you have a lot of militias that have shifting priorities, shifting loyalties. There are questions that have been raised with me by a lot of the Libyans that I speak to about how this EU funding, whether it's actually propping up militias and it's making it more difficult for Libyans themselves to create a state because, you know, you have essentially what's become the monetization of captivity. So actually it is like, you know, it's all a profit making industry to have these refugees that you're keeping in these detention centers. And there's a lot of ways to make money around that. A large proportion of your book is dedicated to the failings of certain aid agencies to deal with human rights abuses, such as torture and starvation being perpetrated in these detention centres. You also write that you've contacted UN agencies repeatedly with information you've received from people within these centres seeking help. How would you assess the UN and more specifically UNHCR, which is the UN body focusing on refugees, its response to the reports of atrocities in these Libyan centres. What the staff in, you know, many of the unhappy staff in those partner agencies and also in UNHCR will say to me is that what has happened in Libya, the way that things have worked out is that the UN is being used as an instrument. It's another instrument of migration control, you know, migration management, as they call it, because it's both being used to whitewash. So when politicians are questioned about it, atrocities they can say oh but we're improving things through the UN but actually the UN is part of this whole system that's aimed at essentially just uh, getting people stuck so that they don't reach Europe. 
you know, the people that I interview, a lot of the time they'll say that's whitewashing the situation, that's making it seem like things are okay when they're not. And actually, you know, you'll have like people dying, people being raped, people being tortured, people being starved. And that's not necessarily the message that's coming out. And for example, that very first story that the very first detention center um, where I was contacted by people in it. So they were moved after, I think, two, two days, they were moved to another detention center. So the war had broken out around them. They were abandoned. Eventually, they were moved to another detention center. Two days after that, the UNHCR released a statement saying that they had been moved, I think it said, out of harm's way. But the reality was that that detention center had then become on, it was then on the front lines. So the front lines shift, you know, if you're in a war. That detention center became also on the front lines. The guards in that detention center also ran away. So they were back in the same position that they had been in in the first detention center. But people were messaging me and they were like, oh, the situation is saved because this statement has been released and it says they're out of harm's way when the refugees were messaging me saying once again we've been abandoned and we have no food and we have no water and we're here with children and we're afraid of the war and we're afraid of being kidnapped by smugglers and all of this. And meanwhile as this is all going on in Libya in March 2019 so now uh, three years ago the European Union declared that the migration crisis was over. Why did they say that? I mean, I think that was because it was two months ahead of European elections. So there was a big fear at the time that the far right were going to gain uh, ground. And I guess from the perspective of a lot of Europeans until this uh, Ukraine crisis anyway, it did seem like, you know, there were less refugees arriving. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't ask themselves why. Um, And so... For the EU, I mean, to declare the migrant crisis over, yeah, there are less people arriving on the continent. So I guess if that's what they see as over, then that's true. But actually, when you ask bigger questions, you go, well, you know, tens of thousands of people are being intercepted at sea and locked up in Libyan migrant detention centers, for example, indefinitely with no legal recourse. So, I mean, do you see that as over? I see that as much more of a crisis than people arriving in Europe. You referenced towards the end of the book the Taliban takeover uh, of Kabul in August 2021 and the subsequent images that went viral showing Afghans dropping to their deaths from the wheels of military planes. At the time, French President Manuel Macron spoke about the need to, quote, anticipate and protect France from a wave of migrants. How does that language and the experiences of the people in this book, who you've written about, who were locked up and tortured in Libyan detention centres. How does all that make you feel when you see the European welcome right now, visas, medical support, housing pledges that are being offered to Ukrainian refugees coming across Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think I should say, first of all, one thing that really astounded me, I don't know if this comes across in the book, but actually, when I started reporting on this, I was so confused that it wasn't more widely known that there were so many aspects to what was happening in North Africa, including like people being held for ransom, like those, the ransoms for uh, people being held by traffickers are being crowdfunded on Facebook, like quite publicly, but I had never even seen this reported anywhere. Um, you know, the fact that we're locking up like tens of thousands of people indefinitely with no criminal charges, with no legal recourse, um, and that many of them are dying, like that also is like very was very astounding to me and very shocking and the people that I interviewed like for example uh, Eritrean activist Marina Stefanos 
who has reported on this for like years, she said, how are you surprised? Like we're black people, like people don't care about us. That's how they feel. And I actually asked another Eritrean guy who is actually, his story is in the book. I was just talking to him yesterday and I said, again, how do you feel about the situation in Ukraine? He said, of course it's racism, but we've always known that racism has existed. I think that in one way what's happening now with Ukraine shows us that a more empathetic refugee policy is possible. Um, And in another way, I mean, it's very shocking because the people who work on what's happening in the central Mediterranean, it's like you're banging your head off a wall, like you want people to hear this. And the fact that you need to kind of play these games in terms of like trying to get this coverage in a polite way when actually like this is a really horrific situation that is ongoing and everybody should be paying attention to it and you know I I don't know why they're not. That's all for today. My thanks to Sally Hayden for joining us to discuss her new book, which is called My Fourth Time We Drowned, and which is now available to buy in all good bookshops. You can also read more of Sally's reporting from Libya and from other countries across Africa at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the News will be back on Friday.